Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. So today I am super excited to have a very brave teenager here with me to share her story. And I just have so much respect and appreciation for people who are willing to share what they've been through and their struggles in order to help others. So Riley is 15 years old and she has been through a lot in her life. And she's going to tell you a little bit about her life story here in a few minutes. And I've known her for about two and a half years and been working with her. And she has just come such a long way. And her story really inspires me. And you might have heard me talk about this in another podcast, or I wrote about it on my podcast website, that sometimes as a therapist, I feel like I get to hear these stories that are like nuggets of gold, or they're like precious gems, and no one else gets to hear them or see them. And they're just so inspiring. And so many people could be helped to know that they're not alone. And so having Riley share this story feels like I get to show the listeners one of the nuggets and one of the gemstones that I've been getting to hear and see. And now it's getting shared because Riley's brave enough to do this. Um, So anyway, um, I guess the best way to start is, first of all, to say hello, Riley. Hi. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. I feel very excited to do this. Oh, well, when I mentioned this to you, um, you just the last time we met, you were saying so many inspiring things about your journey um, with your childhood trauma and dealing with, you know, alcoholism growing up and just some of the turmoil and dysfunction and just how you're rising above and just triumphant above so many things that you've been through. And when I mentioned you possibly one day coming onto the podcast, you were like, I will do it whenever you want. I'm ready. (laughs) Yeah. I was really excited. (laughs) So cool. Well, um, could you maybe just start by giving us a short description of your life story? Okay. So when I was about six or seven is when I really started realizing that my mom started becoming like an alcoholic. And honestly, when I first saw her drunk, I thought that was like the first time ever that she had ever gotten drunk. And I didn't ever, I didn't even think anything of it really. Mm -hmm. I was like, oh, maybe this could be a one-time thing, but little did I know it was going to be something that was going to be with me for a lifetime. Mm -hmm. And I didn't understand that. Um, as I, as I got older, I did start realizing that this had been going on a lot longer than I thought it was. Um, because again, I just thought it started when I was about six or seven. Mm -hmm. And then I realized that it was way before birth that this happened. Mm. Um, 
And so I've had to go through a lot of trauma with her and I've had to deal with a lot of things that not many children have to deal with Mm -hmm. because they usually both have two healthy parents, except I had one really bad parent who was just very all over the place and wasn't all mentally there. Mm -hmm. And it was really hard to deal with. Mm. So the one parent that was involved in your life was very unstable and had like major addiction issues. Mm-hmm. Um, she had a lot of drinking issues. Um, I don't really know about too much drug usage, but I do know that a lot of her friends did as well. And she associated with them. Mm-hmm. And then I had to start meeting them and stuff like that. And it started getting really out of hand. And I would start hearing all these stories. And it was just a whole lot to take in as a child and as someone who has been through that, if any, like anyone else has been through that in exact same situation, it's really hard to come back from that. It's extremely hard to recover from something that was so traumatizing. Mm. So meaning for you to go through all those addiction issues and trauma issues, it's really hard thing to recover from. Mm Yeah, because as I got older, I started getting into a more deeper hole of just depression and wanting to like die and all this other stuff. Because as I got older, I was one of the only kids in my class who never had a dad. Like Mm -hmm. I never had another parent in my life and I was being raised by my grandmother, Mm -hmm. which was not an issue for me because I genuinely enjoyed it. And I got to learn about a lot of things that I probably wouldn't have known if I was living with my mom. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm thankful for my grandmother for being able to house me and be able to take care of me as much as, as much as that the yelling and stuff like that has happened in my family, because after my mom and mom started drinking again, she would quit. So she would have these little periods where she would quit and then come back and Mm -hmm. quit and come back. And each time I would get more irritable, more sick of it. And I would start yelling at people, which really wasn't the way to go. But that's how I coped with it because I had anger issues as well on top of that. Well, understandably, I mean, you had to hold in so much, um, you know, to cope. And a lot of kids that are raised in a home with serious, serious addiction, whether it be alcohol or drugs, they have to be like little adults themselves. And I know you've talked about this and I'd love for you to share, you know, we call it parentification when you become parentified, like you're an adult or you're an, a parent. And um, so you had to Probably, I I don't know how much of this you relate to, but over the years, I've heard stories of, you know, kids, whether they're two years old, five years old, 10 years old, teenagers, they had to try to not make any trouble. They had to not need anything. I remember a story of a little boy who was afraid to get out of bed in the morning Mm -hmm. because his father and mother would get so angry if he woke them up like and he ended up living with his grandmother and she said he would tiptoe around the house and and would be afraid to get out of bed you know Mm -hmm. because he would get in trouble for getting out of bed I completely understand that um a lot I think that a lot of people who have had alcoholic parents 
do go out of their way to try to not be a big burden Mm -hmm. because I have a fear of it. I have a fear of being a burden to people. Like I do not want to stress anybody out. And every single time that I have drama with somebody, I genuinely just do not want it Mm -hmm. because at some time, at some point in my life, I did think that I wasn't really worth anybody's time because Mm -hmm. they were always focused on my mother And it, in a way, it does seem kind of selfish, but in the best way possible, it technically wasn't because I was a child and I needed to be nurtured and I needed to be taken care of. Yet I did not get that. And I had to take care of myself and Mm -hmm. my grandmother had to take care of me. Mm. And it was just a really big eye opener for a lot of stuff that was going to come in the future because I didn't even know that this was going to happen. I was trapped in a little bubble when I was younger Hmm. for a little bit. And then as soon as I saw my mom, that just instantly popped because Uh. of all of this stuff, like the drinking was being put on me and stuff like that. Like as much as I didn't want it to be because I I denied it Mm because I was like, oh, yeah, like she's she's not drinking because of me and all this other stuff. And at one point I did think that and I did think that it was because she had kept telling me over and over about my father and would keep talking about her and and talking about him and talking about him. And it got to a point where I was just like, I could literally be the reason why she is drinking. Oh, man, you blamed yourself. I was about seven um, seven and a half when I started blaming myself for my mom's actions. Oh my goodness. Um, and it really hit me like a truck. Like I felt so depressed at such a young age that I didn't even realize and I couldn't identify it as depression. But over time, I started getting more just irritable and more sad. And I became very sensitive to a lot of different topics now. Um, and I think a lot of people who deal with trauma also have to deal with that as well, that they're automatically either going to be hypersensitive to things Mm. or they are going to be completely not hypersensitive to things Mm. because. So a lot of people are either oversensitive or they're sort of numb or they mm -hmm. block out emotion. I have been both. Mm. Um, so when I was younger, I was really, I wasn't really hypersensitive to anything. So Mm -hmm. I was pretty like chill about everything Mm -hmm. um during school i'd have to like put on this quote-unquote like emotional mask so i didn't like burst out crying in the middle of class because i would randomly think about her and think about what she was doing and all this Mm. other stuff and i obviously didn't want that because i didn't want my home issues to affect my school issues um So I just kind of left it as it was. And over time, that became something that grew on me and something that became a part of me. So again, feeling like happy and giddy and all this other stuff. I can I don't feel that as much as a normal human should Mm -hmm. or like a person without trauma should. I remember you saying a couple of things that really stood out with your trauma. And one was that you just really learned to block your emotion and numb yourself. And then it was really hard for you to feel happy. Mm-hmm. Um, at sometimes I do think that it is helpful because in most to numb yourself. Yes. Mm-hmm. But in not in the way of like just numbing yourself is horrible Mm -hmm. because it can you bottle up so much emotion that you will eventually become 
it'll become part of you. Yeah. And exactly why you would burst out crying in class. It probably felt like a safe place where you could decompress, but at home you had to freeze all that and go into adult, Mm -hmm. you know, hypervigilant mode. Mm -hmm. Um, and as I got older, I realized that since of those, since I had those bottled up emotions in one like little bubble, as I got older, that bubble started to become bigger and bigger and bigger. And then most recently it started to like pop basically. And so all of those really like emotional emotions, like those really strong emotions are coming back Mm. and it's really hard to deal with them sometimes. But I have to think of like, hey, you've been through a lot of trauma in the past. You need to understand that like a a lot of things that have happened in the past is because of who you are now. Mm. Wow. Yeah. It's like when you're in a safe, stable environment where you're with adults and people that can take care of you, you're allowed to let your guard down. You're able to let your guard down and to feel your emotions and have the normal needs that a kid is allowed, supposed to have. But when you're in an unusual, you know, or traumatic or neglectful situation or an abusive situation, which it could vary, as you know, it could be verbal abuse, physical abuse. It could be, um, you know, sexual abuse. It could be addiction. It could be a parent that's so depressed that they're on the couch and they're just not functioning like adults. I mean, there's so many different reasons that Mm -hmm. people or people are left home without adult supervision. Maybe it's a single parent that has to work a bunch of jobs, but you have to keep your guard up and you're not, you feel like you're not able to have those normal needs that you have. And you don't, not only do you not want to burden your own family or your parents who are supposed to take care of you, but you feel like you have to take care of them. Mm -hmm. You are basically in that situation. You are being the parent Mm -hmm. at some point. And a lot of things, like I think a lot of people that do deal with this type of trauma, they do deny it because I have denied it so many times that my mom has drank and done all of this other stuff. I have denied so much of it, but So when I actually did start realizing, it kind of just really hit me in Mm. one single like swoop and it was really bad. Mm. And a lot of that trauma, I guess, like the way that it kind of hit me was about when I was like eight or nine and I started to genuinely realize that my mother was an alcoholic Mm. because when I was about seven, I was like, oh, it's fine. She'll just drink for a year or so and then she'll be over it. No, this went on for years and I never thought of it as I never thought to look back and be like, I literally said that it was only going to be a year and now it's turned into years. You just wanted to hope for the best and maybe minimize it or deny Mm -hmm. it like anyone at any age oftentimes really wants to kind of say, oh, it's not that bad. It'll get better. And it sounds like you did that in multiple rounds. And I think you said your mom went to rehab four times, um, more times than I can really count. But the most times that I really know about are she's about been four times from what I'm aware of. I know that she's definitely been more though. Mm. Um, but I do think that a lot of people with trauma and everything like that, they will deny it for a certain amount of time. And then at some point it'll hit them and then they'll break down. Mm-hmm. And it's a really big emotional roller coaster. And at one point I thought, oh, yeah, it'll just get better. 
and it does eventually mm-hmm. it may some people may take longer than others but i genuinely do think that everybody does get better at some point and maybe you getting better is like it may not be as big as you want it to be so like the trauma that you still have it may still be with you and it may still hurt you mm-hmm. in a way but as long as you are able to cope with it that is one step getting closer to you being able to be better and have it will get better in Mm, that sort of sense such a beautiful message to give people is it's going to be hard for a long time and it's not going to get better overnight but once you start learning to cope with it that's kind of when it starts to get better Mm -hmm. when um I started thinking about, oh, when is it going to get better? When is it going to get better? Like, I am literally so sick of this. Like, what did I do to deserve it? Mm, nothing. They, whoever has that exact same thought as what I had, they probably had nothing to even do with it. Mm-hmm. They were just like, oh, yeah, like, I really wanted to get better and all this other stuff. Yeah, I understand that you want it to get better, but at sometimes it's going to take longer periods. Mm-hmm. And that's what happened with my mother. And even sometimes my mom, my mom still scares me because I'm, she'll text me something really random while she's driving and I will, my heart will drop mm. because I will think that she's drinking or something like that. And it's, and then I start getting overprotective and I start getting scared and all this other stuff. And then... I start overthinking again, which is part of what happened when I was younger was that part of that trauma when I would see my mom randomly text me things and stuff like that. When she was like out somewhere and I didn't know where she was, she would text me random things. So I knew that she would be drunk, but I never really thought to like take a moment and realize it. Mm. Um, And as I got older, that part of it just came with me. So whenever she would text me nonsense, I would get really scared. Yes, because your brain associates that with traumatic memories Mm -hmm. and it's like a flashback. So if you get a random text, you your brain kind of assumes the worst and goes into fight or flight like, oh, no, like what if she's drunk or what if she's relapsed? And sometimes it was just a random text and she was fine. Mm -hmm. Wow. So you had you said a couple of things I wanted to follow up on. One was I wanted to know more of the specifics about when your grandmother kind of took over and you you lived with her and, and that kind of thing. And then um, the other one was related to, um, well, actually I have three. This my brain always does this. You also mentioned that you thought it was your fault and you thought maybe your mom's drinking or drug issues or whatever it was, was your fault. Can you talk a little bit more about those two pieces? Mm-hmm. So I've lived with my grandmother um, ever since I was born. Um, uh, She was the one who took me home from the hospital. She was the one who took me into her house and all of this other stuff. About how old was your mother when you were born? Um, I think she was in her like 19, 20. Around 20-ish or? Yeah, 20, 19 in that range. Um, So she was still kind of young, but... She also was still having to deal with my father. And I think both my mom and my grandmother knew that my father was very abusive mm-hmm. as a human being. So my grandmother decided to take me in. And I think it also had to deal with the fact that my mom was still very much mentally unstable. Mm-hmm. So I think that was kind of the two like 
big deal breakers of like, hey, your child is going to live with me now. Mm -hmm. She knew she needed to step in. Yeah, because she knew that my mom was not going to be able to take care of me. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's helpful to know. Yeah, and what gave you the sense that your mom's drinking might have been your fault? Um, Well, I had a lot of doubts about it. Mm -hmm. But I remember one conversation that we had, which was a while ago, Mm -hmm. but I do remember this one conversation that we had. It was really late at night and I heard my mom downstairs just eating, just eating away. And she Mm -hmm. would do this almost every night, but you could tell that she was drunk and you could see it in her Mm -hmm. eyes. And that's another trauma thing. Like, that's why I can't look at people in the eyes directly. Because the look in your mom's eyes? Mm Mm-hmm. Because I, not just because she was drunk, but looking into really anybody's eyes kind of gives me like that little like moment of like, like hurt, like in a way Mm. kind of like hurt and sadness Mm. because I remember that and that's like stuck in my head now. So looking at people in the eyes is really like hard to do. It's another traumatic association that your brain has developed. Mm -hmm. Um. And it's really just, it's not something that anybody wants to go through. Mm. And I hate the fact that people do go through it. Mm. You grieve for others who've been through what you've been through? Yes, because yeah. it hurts. And do you grieve for yourself? Um, I do grieve for myself some. Um, but again, I think that mostly everything that happens happens for a reason. Mm. So I feel like the fact that I do have all this trauma is for a reason. Um, and it may be because I'm going to get over it eventually. Wow. Or it may be because I can use it once I'm older mm-hmm. and I can use that to help people as an example of trauma. Because some people, I do know a lot of people who don't really, they can't identify trauma. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of people do deny it. Um, because I do help a lot of my friends and stuff like that, Mm -hmm. um, trying to help them better themselves as a person Mm. and all this other stuff. And so being able to use that trauma is really nice. It's amazing that you can look past all the pain and suffering and loss that you've been through and the things that you missed out on as far as having an ideal childhood. And nobody has a perfect childhood, but In cases like this, it's like really, really traumatic. It's not Mm -hmm. just a mildly disappointing childhood that, you know, I don't know, I won't even give any examples, but, um, you know, there, there can be small losses and, and huge losses and traumas. Mm -hmm. And I love the saying, like, you know, there's a silver lining that you can see the dark moments and all the pain, but see this happens for a reason. Good can come out of this. I want to use my experience to help other people. Mm -hmm. I do think that after a while though, Mm -hmm. I really started like getting really depressed, like Mm -hmm. over time. Um, Of course, that's still understandable. I did go to like, I've gone to other therapists before and stuff like that. And I'm pretty sure I've mentioned this that I have been to multiple different therapists. Well, I should specify two different therapists. Mm -hmm. And one was an art therapist and one was just a regular like therapist. Mm -hmm. Um, Both of them would focus on my mom Mm. and which was definitely a big part of it. But 
I needed something more than that because just like that might have been like my focal point for like trauma. Like that was my pinpoint for right. trauma. But that just wasn't all it because mm-hmm. it wasn't just my mom and it wasn't just like <clears throat> all of this other stuff because yes that is a major point but as I got older I realized I still have so much other so many other things that went wrong in my childhood mm. <clears throat> that it kind of just like branched off of my the pinpoint of my mom and became more trauma and more like and I had to find more coping mechanisms and all this other stuff. And I was really lost in like this big giant maze of just trauma. And it was really right. hard to get out of. So it was much more complicated and they were maybe oversimplifying it to be all about your mother. But there were a lot of little, as you said, branches of different pieces. You had some mm-hmm. with your dad and just some with life in general. Mm-hmm. And I hate it because I know a lot of people do know about my mom mm-hmm. and they do know about her and they I've had people literally talk about her and I'm overprotective of her. Hmm. As much as she may have not raised me, I am still overprotective of her because obviously she was drinking for a reason and her substance abuse was for a reason. Um, she did not just do it randomly. Um, she did it obviously because she was hurt. And she was hurt, not just physically, but mentally. So you have a lot of compassion mm -hmm. for why she was choosing a very unhealthy habit and and really making a lot of unhealthy, damaging choices that hurt you. But you can see, in fact, you and I talked about this right before we started recording is just, I wonder if things would have been different for your mother if she had gotten therapy when she was a teenager like you have Mm -hmm. and earlier. Yeah, because she was a very rebellious teenager from what I was, from what I've heard. So a lot of that, I think, was also kind of like the reason why she started becoming really depressed and all this other stuff. And I think that's kind of the reason why I wanted her to get help at the age that she is now. Hmm. Because even though that she cannot help her younger self as much as she really wants to, mm-hmm. she can't go back and try and help her, help herself, mm-hmm. but she can try to move forward and help herself and better her future self than trying to stick on the past and trying to work with her as a child. Mm. So you really just want the best and you're rooting for your mother even now. And I assume she's probably near her mid thirties if she was about 19 or 20 when she had you. Um, And I think you said before you would tell her before, like you're with an abusive boyfriend or I want you to get therapy. Like Mm -hmm. you would sort of try to coach and guide her. I did do that for a while. I would try and guide her through a lot of things that she had issues with. Because again, as much as she is my mother and all of this other stuff, I am still the person that she will come to if mm. she genuinely needs like help. Mm-hmm. Um, because in a way, I feel like it may be just be it may just be a bond thing. Mm-hmm. But in another sense, I feel like I genuinely am able to like hit her in that one spot where it hurts, mm-hmm. so she realizes what she's doing like a wake-up call or speaking the truth and and maybe probably not in any kind of a mean-spirited way but to honestly just be brutally honest and clarify things Mm -hmm. because she knows that whatever i say i do mean 
because mm-hmm. I am not the type of person to sugarcoat anything. Mm-hmm. Like if I have something to say, I will say it because I was sugarcoated. Yeah, the truth hurts, and but it's needed. I was sugarcoated a little bit when I was younger, but for the most part, I was completely told the truth for the like that my mom was drinking and all this other stuff. Like that's why I would not sh- sugarcoat anything with anybody's child or anything like that, hmm. because at some point they are going to have to realize it. <clears throat> mm-hmm. And yeah. it's really just, it's, it's like, it's going to hit really hard mm-hmm. if you just completely sugarcoat them yeah, and then say it. I have a lot of respect for that. And I talk about this a lot with, you know, what is tough love and what is really the most loving way that we can be with the people that we care about. And I kind of joke sometimes that I have a wimpy kind of love because I, am conflict avoidant and I don't want to hurt people's feelings. I'm kind of too sensitive with that. And I think that is often a disservice is to water things down and sugarcoat them. So I, I definitely think that speaking the truth in love and being, you know, brutally honest and remembering that people need clarity and truth. And I often think of, you know, athletic coaches or, drama, you know, teachers or, you know, any, even like shows like the voice or America's got talent to not tell someone the truth is actually not loving. Like you're off tune or you need work or you're not ready to advance to the next, next level. And that may hurt their feelings, but it's honest and they need to hear it. Mm -hmm. Because if they don't hear that, in my opinion, I take a lot of like things that other people say, Mm -hmm. and I will try and turn them into good. Um, even if they are not trying to make it good, I will take that and make it a reason to better myself as a human being. Mm. Um, like in fights and stuff like that, I've had so many people, I have to ask for reason because once I have reason, I am able to be like, okay, I'm very sorry for what I did. I may or may not like have meant that, Mm -hmm. but now I know what to do and I know how to make myself a better person. And I know how to grow off of that. See, not many people have that, honestly, that willingness or that openness. And it sounds like you actually really appreciate and use honest feedback and constructive criticism. Mm -hmm. I have a lot of people in my past, like when I was in elementary school, I was bullied. I was bullied through all elementary school. Mm. I was talked about behind my back. I was pushed, shoved, fought, like, at least I fought one person about three times. Mm. Um, I remember you talking about that. (laughs) So I really got to a point when I fought her, I got to a point where I was genuinely like, I'm so sick of this Mm -hmm. because I wasn't just dealing with her. I was also dealing with at home trauma. Yeah. And that's why I feel like if somebody is being rude to me, then I'm just like, okay, Because they could be dealing with something at home. And if they're not, they're just mean. So you try to rise above it? Mm Mm-hmm. Wow. I try to think of myself as the more mature one who Mm -hmm. is not trying to, like, be mean or be immature Mm -hmm. and do all of this other stuff. Because I could easily be mean back. But I see no point in it. Mm -hmm. I see no point in to fight with other people. Um, If I do have, like, really strong emotions about someone, I will voice it. Mm-hmm. but I will usually voice it to them and mm-hmm. I will be like, Hey, like you need to, 
you either need to like stop talking to me or you need to go find somebody else. Mm. Because as much as I hate to be picked on, I would rather somebody pick on me than somebody pick on somebody completely they don't know or somebody mm-hmm. they that has really bad issues and they can't mm-hmm. help it. So Riley, this brings up a question because you're so wise and you're such an old soul. And, you know, I guess I'm curious, where do you think you got these traits? Where did they come from? And, and you know, the research on psychology shows that there are traits like being um, resilient and being optimistic and things like that are so associated with mental health. Mm-hmm. And optimism is too, as long as you're not trying to fake good and, you know, like, but where do you think that wisdom and optimism and all that resilience came from? Um, I think I started realizing it as I got older, um, because as I was like, I was like, when is it going to get better? Um, that was basically just me asking the universe, like, oh, is it ever going to get better at any point? Um, but I realized that just asking that question makes you feel so hopeless in so many different ways because I would speak out and I'd be like, when is this going to be okay? Mm. And like, when am I going to be able to like be a good person to like other people and I'm not grouchy and all this other stuff? And I kept asking myself that. But as I got older, I started realizing that you can't just ask that question you have to make it happen sometimes because mm. i do know a lot of people they'll be like oh when is it going to get better and then it does get better but i also do know people who are like oh when is it going to get better and their life is a train wreck and i'm like you need to fix that so when when a lot of this changed for you was when you realized that you needed to do something active to change your life instead mm-hmm. of passively waiting for it to just your situation to get better. Mm-hmm. Because, yes, there is a point where you could do that. You could um, wait it out. But I'm not that big of a type of person to like just sit and wait for something to mm-hmm. happen, because if my life is bad, I will try to fix it. Mm-hmm. Um, but. I realized when I was about 12 that this was just becoming like a whole issue. And then when I turned 13, I started becoming very just depressed. I started self-harming and doing all of this. At age 12? Yeah. Age 12 to 13 is when I started cutting and like doing all of the self-harm stuff because I really hated my life. Mm. Um, And then right as I turned like end of like me being 14 so like 14 and a half Mm -hmm. um to 15 i started realizing i was like hey like this whole thing that you have or that you had when you were younger is something that you could try to learn off of Mm. and you can make you could think of it as more of a learning experience than anything because i think of i thought of it as like cutting was a learning experience to be like this hurts Like, Mm -hmm. this hurts me. Like, not just me mentally, this hurts me physically as well. And so you are literally building on top of all of the trauma and the, like, everything else. That's what I say. The last thing someone needs who has been hurt so badly is to hurt themselves more. And yet I understand why. And you use the words, um, turning your mental pain into physical pain is a relief. Yes, it can be a relief. I just think it used to be. (laughs) It used to be a relief. Like it used to be like, 
something I was really just prominent about. I was like, oh yeah, cutting is great. Like, I feel like it takes away all this mental pain. Mm -hmm. It doesn't, it Mm -hmm. really does not. Because Mm -hmm. I would sit in my room and I would cry for hours and hours. I'd be like, hey, I need to cut or I need to do something like that. And so I would have the urge to cut multiple times all the time. Like I would try and do it a lot of the times that my grandmother wasn't home. I would do it in the shower. Um, You would do it in hidden places so no one mm -hmm. could notice. I did it on my hips and my chest. And sometimes I did it on like my lower leg Mm -hmm. so people wouldn't really notice. Yeah. But over time, I realized that those spots genuinely hurt. Like I have cut on my arms before and stuff Mm -hmm. like that. Not not to the point where you could see them, though, see the scars like they're there, but they're very faint. Mm -hmm. Um, And so after that happened, I realized that where I was cutting before was extremely horrible for me. Like when I started cutting on my hips, like that was a really thin layer of skin. Ooh, mm-hmm. So it hurt a lot worse than just cutting on your arms and stuff like that. And then I started realizing more and more that this is going to hurt you in the long run. Yes. Because the amount of scars that you could fill your arm with or fill your legs with or anything like that you could see that as a more of a temptation than a like learning thing because i know a lot of people are like oh well it's not that bad i mean i i think it kind of reminds me of it and all this other stuff about what i used to be in and yes it does but it also hurts like yeah. it hurts to look at yes and you know, I think you and I are on the same page with we have so much compassion and understanding for why you did that and why others do that. But yet we want a better coping mechanism for people. And I actually think that cutting parallels drinking and drugs and things like that in the sense that it gives someone relief maybe for an hour but mm-hmm. but then the problems are even worse. And then you have the aftermath of scars and pain and infections, just like the aftermath of hangovers, legal problems, ruining relationships, ruining lives, that a, a short relief and a short break um, from your pain or distraction is not worth all the aftermath that is just terrible. It's not. And I say this wholeheartedly that like, if like, I think that I have had so many temptations where I've wanted to do alcohol and drugs and Mm -hmm. stuff like that because I'm a teenager. Mm -hmm. That's like, that is an instinct that a lot of teenagers do have. Yeah. But in my thought process, I would never go through with it because I'm too scared. Mm -hmm. And I think that's with a lot of teens. They say that they want to die and they say they want to do all of this. But in reality, they are really scared to die. Mm -hmm. Like, I think, I think that's a fear that almost everybody has. But Mm -hmm. when I said that I wanted to die and I wanted to cut myself, I wasn't cutting myself to kill myself. Yeah. I was cutting because I, in my brain, I thought that I wanted to die. Hmm. And then I thought that like, I was like, oh, life isn't really worth it and all this other stuff. But then I started like thinking about it. And then I was like, no, this is, this is not the way to go Hmm. because I think After seeing a lot of people, because I've seen a lot of people with like illnesses and stuff like that, they're literally living their life in a hospital bed for most of their life. Like with a a medical problem? Yeah. Most people with like medical issues Mm -hmm. where they physically cannot really go and live their life, Mm -hmm. 
make it hurts to look at because it's so depressing because mm. they're literally sitting in a hospital bed with needles like in their arms just such a hard quality of life and yeah. low quality of life to suffer like that and i feel like after i realized i was like oh i want to kill myself and all this other stuff and then looking at all of that i'm like my life is not as bad as what it seems mm. like i may have i may not have that many friends but i still have myself Mm -hmm. And I think that a lot of people could be like, oh, yeah, well, I don't like myself. So why would I want to be near myself? Mm -hmm. You've dealt with yourself all your life. Like and if you are a person who has dealt with trauma and you do have like a lot of trauma and issues, I think you're a cool person. Like, mm -hmm. I think that those types of people are so cool because they have gone through so much. Yeah, I mean, they're they're survivors and honestly a lot of them should get medals of you know being through the war and purple star what are you what are i'm terrible purple star i don't know <laughs> but military awards truly um and i had a a 20 year old ish client who he was so empathetic with his younger siblings they all went through huge huge trauma and he had to be the parent and protect them but he talked about his sister who was probably 15 or so and she was cutting and he said those are her battle wounds mm -hmm. and you know i don't want to glorify cutting because it's it's not a healthy way to cope it's a very understandable way until you discover healthier ways um so can you talk maybe for just a few minutes and then i would love to transition into another episode and continue on with some of this, but can you talk about um, how you stop cutting and self-harming and then sort of some of your healthiest coping mechanisms that have mm -hmm. helped you the most, and then we'll move into the next episode. So I stopped cutting about <laughs> like uh, two years ago, I think. I love it. Riley's grabbing her phone to look at her app to tell you the exact amount of days. Okay, so I have been sober and self-harm free for two years, seven months, um, one day, 51 minutes and 37 seconds. Oh, my goodness. Two um, years and seven months? Yeah. <laughs> wow. Um, I think the last time that I did self-harm was in sixth grade when I was in a really deep part of my life where uh -huh. I just hated everything. Like I hated every moment of my life. Um, and I grew from that. Mm -hmm. I started finding coping mechanisms and I started thinking a lot of coping me mechanisms didn't really work for me. Um, like I know a lot about one about like the ice cube on the arm mm -hmm. and all this other stuff with like the red dye that never helped. Mm -hmm. Um, it can help for some people. It just really depends on who you are. Exactly. I totally agree. People need to experiment with different things and see which one helps them the most. Mm -hmm. I found that mostly the thing that does distract me was, um, music. Mm. Music is a really big one. Mm -hmm. I play the ukulele. So I do have a lot of music, like, like, I have a lot of, like, little, like, nicks on my fingers and stuff like that from it. Mm -hmm. um, I also roller skate. So that was a huge one for me when I was a little bit more Great. still trying to get away from it. Because I would use skating as a way of, like, not self-harming, but I was still, like, somewhat getting injured in a way. Mm -hmm. Which obviously wasn't as healthy as it should have been. But right. 
I realized that I was like, I fell, got back up, even though I was injured, I would still skate around Mm -hmm. and I would fall, then get back up and start skating around again. And sometimes I would get like scrapes on my knees and all this other Mm -hmm. stuff. But in, in a way it distracted me, but it also helped me because as much as I don't want to promote self-harm and stuff like that as like, oh yeah, do it. Skating was the biggest thing because this was like, as I newly got off of like cutting and stuff like that, like just newly coming off of it, just not like a day or two afterwards. Mm -hmm. Then I started getting into skating and I realized I was like, hey, this is not me self-harming. This is me trying to cope with whatever happened at that moment Mm -hmm. yes i am getting hurt but it's mentally helping me Mm -hmm. if that makes any sense Mm -hmm. well yeah it was a fun hobby and you know you maybe didn't mind a little bit of pain but at least it wasn't Mm self-inflicted and by the way before we started recording i i said let's be thinking about titles for this episode and i don't know that this this thing you just said would be a great title in the sense of explaining what this is about. But I just thought it was beautiful. What you just said is I would fall and get back up Mm -hmm. and then I'd fall and get back up and then start skating again. And to me, that's kind of like the theme of your life. I mean, you went through so many. I had a lot of falls. Um, I had a lot of issues that I had to get over, but again, I would just keep, I would keep getting back up and Mm. start, like skating again and trying to fix myself and fix whatever happened in my past because I want to be able to fix it so I can help other people. Mm, You never gave up. I never gave up. I did have times again when I was cutting that I Mm -hmm. was really just out of it. I think I did start experimenting with self-harm when I was about in fifth grade though. Um, Maybe around 11 yeah, okay. I was yeah, I was about that age, fourth or fifth grade, I think, okay. something around there. Maybe even nine or ten. Um, I started experimenting with it because I was like, I am so mentally like just messed up that I feel like I need to go to self. Well, understandably, see, that's normal. That's a thing that bothers me when people say, "Oh, that person is crazy. They're so paranoid." Well. Maybe they're paranoid for a reason Mm -hmm. or that person is so messed up. My mind is messed up. Well, your mind should have been messed up after what you went through, you know? Yeah, I got called crazy at one point because one of the girls that I knew did find out that I Mm self-harmed. And so she went around telling people that I was crazy, but I wasn't. I was mentally hurt. If they knew what you were going through, they would have never thought that was crazy. Yeah, I feel like a lot of people are like, ew, well, depression, like, oh, you cutting is like crazy and all this other stuff. It's not crazy. It's other people trying to come back from something that was so mentally damaging Mm -hmm. that they feel the need to hurt themselves over something that somebody else mostly probably have done. Yes. Like cutting yourself is less painful than the images and the trauma and the experiences you've been through. You know, this person has been through Mm -hmm. so much. Yeah. And I feel like a lot of people, they see, they still see those images in their head and they're like, oh, instantly like, oh, cutting. But Mm -hmm. I think of it as like, if in, if in any situation, if anybody Mm -hmm. is cutting, experimenting with it, like Mm -hmm. experimenting and like trying to fix it Mm -hmm. is 
a lot helpful because it, it distracts your brain from doing it Mm -hmm. and it distracts you from a lot of things that could happen. Right. Like as I like, I would, I experimented and when I was younger, the best thing that I found was pencil on paper when my mom was drinking and stuff like that. I would drown out the sound and hyper-focus my ears on the sound of a pencil on paper. And I got so used to this sound that I just loved drawing, loved writing, loved anything like that. And so... And it sounds kind of weird because, like, how do you drown out the sound of, like, throwing up with, like, a pencil and paper and stuff like that? If you, you hyper-focus enough mm-hmm. and you can hyper-focus on one thing, you will be able to do it. Yes, you can hear it in the background, but it will not bother you as much as you think Yeah, it that was a healthy coping mechanism. And you used the word two different verbs is you would mute out those sounds or drown out those sounds. Um, and those traumatic noises associated with addictions, I've heard many stories over the years of, you know, kids that the sound of ice cubes would traumatize them. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah. you mentioned having a guttural, guttural reaction to the smell of alcohol. The smell of alcohol is very sensitive to me. I can smell it because my grandmother drinks and stuff like that, but mm-hmm. she's never the type of drinker to like go overboard. Yeah, it's not she, a problem. She mm-hmm. wants to be in control. Mm-hmm. So I would, so the smell of alcohol was really big because I used to sniff cups and bottles and do all of this other stuff because I was trying to find a clean cup because usually when I was younger, I would have a cup of water before bed. But as I got older, I literally could not do that because all of the water bottles were filled with vodka and alcohol and all this other stuff. There were some Gatorade bottles that were filled with alcohol. All of the plastic cups that were in our house and glasses too were filled with alcohol as well. Mm. Um, My tumbler that I had, it was like a little Harry Potter tumbler Mm -hmm. that was filled with alcohol. Oh my goodness. So I literally had, and it literally, I literally gave her my tumbler because I was like, hey, just have it. I mean, talk about having to be hyper aware and on alert mode and hyper vigilant. When you think about that, just literally being afraid to drink off of a glass or a cup on the countertop and having to like search through or hide your own cup to keep yourself from accidentally drinking vodka, that that really paints a picture that shares the story of not being able to let your guard down and sort of be carefree. Um, I've worked with kids over the years. I remember one that had to drive for her father when she was about 13 because he was drunk. I can remember kids going to their parents saying, you know, don't we need to eat something besides, you know, Twinkies and cookies and, Mm -hmm. you know, making their own hot dogs at age five or six. I mean, that being parentified, um, it's so... um, So, yeah. Okay. Well, we'll wrap this one up and then we have a few more things that um, we want to share related to this topic. So (laughs) join us in the next episode.